Sup Freaks, it's your boy Marty Bent here to introduce this episode of Tales from the Crypt. I had the immense pleasure of sitting down with Preston Byrne from Anderson Kill, partner at Anderson Kill, excuse me, to discuss the law, um, why it's so slow, uh, the First Amendment in the digital age, uh, people's right to speech, specifically on platforms like Twitter and other social media companies. Uh, also got into the discussion of, of Bitcoin and law, is Bitcoin free speech, and a bunch of other stuff. I think you guys are really going to like this. This episode of Tales from the Crypt is brought to you by our good friends at the Cash App. Cash App. You freaks already know all about them, but if you don't know about them, let me tell you about them. Right? They're helping us stack sats, send sats, receive sats, and sell sats if you need to. Unfortunate if you do need to. They're uh, also making sats a standard. Instead of buying fractions of Bitcoin, we're buying whole sats. Sats are on sale, freaks, and Cash App is letting you buy them. Uh, on top of that, they have Cash App Investing, where you can stack slivers of stonks if you want to. If your favorite stonks a little too expensive, you can buy as little as $1 using the Cash App. Um, because it's directly connected to your bank account, there's no four to five day waiting period, so you can start investing today. And hey, Cash App may even be your bank account. They're offering account numbers and routing numbers so that you can get your paychecks direct deposited into the app, cut the banks out. Well, maybe Cash App's becoming a new a new old bank. So cut your, cut the old banks out and use Cash App as your bank. It's possible now. Uh, Cash App Investing is a subsidiary square member SIPC. As always, make sure you use the code stacking sats. That's one word S T A C K I N G S A T S. When downloading the app, you're going to get $10, and $10 is going to go to our good friend. Our good friend, Al? No, our good friends at Owls Lacrosse. That's Owls Lacrosse in Chicago. Use the code stacking sats. Download the Cash App. Enjoy this episode with Preston Burn. You've had a dynamic where money's become freer than free. If you talk about a Fed just gone nuts, all, all the central banks going nuts. So it's all acting like safe haven. I believe that in a world where central bankers are tripping over themselves to devalue their currency, Bitcoin wins. In the world of fiat currencies, Bitcoin is the victor. I mean, that's part of the bull case for Bitcoin. If you're not paying attention, you probably should be. What is up, freaks? Welcome back to Tales from the Crypt. It's your boy Marty Bent here on a hot Friday afternoon. About to talk about a bunch of hot topics with partner at Anderson Kill, Preston Byrne. Preston, welcome to the podcast. What up, Marty? How you doing? Chilling. I'm happy we uh, we could get this together. I know we both had big weeks moving uh, out of our apartments or houses. I don't know if you moved out of an apartment or house, but I think that we have the uh, the life experience of one of the worst life experiences in the world this week which is moving from place to place no i, I actually live in a borough um so most people don't know they think i'm an attorney i'm actually a groundhog and so i move from one <laughs> borough to the next um so it's underground it's very cozy um you know the, there there's some big advantages to living in a borough um you know underground the earth maintains a pretty consistent temperature of about 50 degrees year round so it's really comfortable in the heat of summer and the cold of winter um, you know, it's resistant to, to nuclear strikes. 
Um, so there really is a lot to recommend living like a marmot. Um, and you, you can just pick anywhere or anywhere the grass is and, and decide or? Yeah, anywhere where there's reasonably compact soil where, uh, where it doesn't flood and there aren't too many coyotes and you should be in good shape. It's, uh, it's not a bad gig. As long as you can dig, you can get down to those uh, stasis temperatures. <laughs> uh, it, it, it seems the authorities have found you, Marty, judging from the uh, sirens in the background. Yeah, I'm outside right now. The uh, <laughs> the local town that I'm in, the, uh, what's it called? Um, volunteer firefighter alarm just went off, so it seems like they're, call, they're uh, responding to that call. Cool. Uh, they're not responding to this hot podcast, obviously. They're responding to something else. No, no. But it's going to get hot here. Maybe they'll start, maybe they'll respond by the end of the conversation. Let's hop into it. It's uh, wanted to have you on the podcast. I really like your views um, around Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies, but then uh, also your views on civil, civil liberties in the digital age. And uh, it's very tenacious time. Tenacious? That's not a word. It's very. Uh, there's a lot of tension in the air right now. Uh, woke culture is gaining ground in the world. Uh, People are getting deplatformed. People are censoring speech. We just had California vote to take out a clause in their uh, constitution. It basically says you can't discriminate based on race, sex, gender, orientation. Mm -hmm. So as a a lawyer sitting back, or not even as a lawyer, as an individual sitting back and watching all this, what's going on in the world in your mind? And and how do you perceive that through the lens of law? Um. The law is one of those weird things when in crazy times you can have a lot of confidence that uh, that it's going to achieve the correct results. So they, we have an expression, the wheels of justice grind slowly but exceedingly fine. Um, a lot of the time when we, when we see this woke shit happens at light speed, right? So cancellation of someone because they wore an OAN t-shirt or because they said the wrong thing on Twitter is part of a high-speed feedback cycle that most humans aren't really very well um, well trained or accustomed to tolerate. So if you're some organization or some small business, and all of a sudden you're thrust into the limelight of having thousands and thousands and thousands of people uh, piling in on you, that's, that's extremely uncomfortable. And it's not something really which you can train anyone to address. So what we're seeing is that there are groups of people on the internet predominantly on Twitter, but also on other social networks, who will find something that's offensive, which is said by somebody else. They will then pile on vast amounts of pressure onto various people, employers, whatever. I even, I had one person, I retweeted something, and a guy who I've known for probably six years went and contacted my law partner and said, you know, you, maybe you should stop doing business with a fascist. Like literally, I, re, I retweeted, <laughs> I, I retweeted a, a, a video of a guy getting pushed over at a police rally um, where someone was asking about what the nature was of the interaction between the victim um, and the police. And as a, as a matter of intellectual inquiry, and this guy writes to my law partner and says, blah, 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 blah. And I wrote back to him and I said, listen, next time you... Uh, Next time you have an issue with something I say, I'll give you my mother's contact details so you can go bitch to her instead. <laughs> and he, he didn't like that too much. He then responded with a very long email saying, and this goes the other way. People have contacted my law partner, Stephen Pally, is fairly well known on Twitter as well. And he is, he is let's shall we say, on the, on the left side of the spectrum and I'm on the right side of the spectrum. And we get along famously and we, we like, you know, we're best friends. We've known each other for years. 
So <laughs> we, were at, we were at lunch uh, today, and it occurred to us that we should mention that people contact each of us complaining about the other one, and we had a pretty good laugh about that. But like, when, when did it become appropriate? At what point did it become appropriate when someone disagrees with you about something to contact their employer and start to complain? Um, you know, it, under any sensible, reasonable definition of, of, you know, of appropriate human conduct, we would call that harassment. Um, and it's creepy behavior. It's like it's stalking. It's really, really weird. But yet somehow this has just become something which is acceptable in the last couple of months or years uh, where someone does something privately outside of the scope of their employment, nothing to do with the job. And other people think it's important uh, to then flood the employer or whoever else with uh, communications such that that person's employment is terminated. Um, so that it's a really weird situation. It's a really weird world we're living in. Uh, I'm not sure how to make heads and tails of it, but what I do know is that the judicial system um, is operates very, very slowly, and as a consequence, it's kind of immune to these, you know, spur of the moment things. I think there are things we can do to make, you know, corporations and others more immune to these things. But at least for the time being, there's not too much, over, you know, spillover into the area of law because the law just kind of sits there and the stuff washes over it while it works through its, you know, procedural mechanisms. Yeah, I mean, it's getting to the point where people are going back decades and finding content or something somebody said and canceling them is, I believe, L.A. Galaxy soccer player. He got fired for something his wife said on Facebook. Mm-hmm. It's complete mm-hmm. insanity. And, yeah, I mean, obviously, tensions are high right now. Election year. Everybody hates Donald Trump. Uh, but it seems like the last few weeks particularly, like, the law has really been brushed over. Like, people pulling down statues on federal land nothing really happening uh, all the rioting going on the cops standing back what what is happening there like are, are we at risk of of entering a lawless society if this goes on for too long like no what's your no yeah no i mean we're not communist china right so we're not a we're not burma we're not russia so what our police don't do in or what police generally in democracies do not do is shoot people to prevent them from committing property crime. So sometimes that means you're going to retreat and you're going to let someone topple the statue. But in terms of the sort of recriminations for what has happened, um, so for example, on the White House, on, you know, just out in front of the White House, someone, a group of people tried to topple the statue of Andrew Jackson. Um, another group has threatened to topple the statue of Abraham Lincoln, uh, the emancipation sculpture outside of Congress, right? And so when people do this, great. Like if you want to go stand outside of, one guy stood out, he stood next to the emancipation statue. He took out a megaphone and he said to a bunch of people, we're going to come back here on Thursday. And Thursday it didn't happen. I think it's supposed to happen today now. And we're going to come back here and we're going to tear down this statue. And everyone went, okay, everybody okay? Okay, all right, fine. What you've just done is you've committed conspiracy. Um, I can't remember the exact provision to commit property damage against the property of the United States. And you've committed conspiracy, which is itself a standalone crime. Um, so conspiracy against the United States, which is you have an agreement of two or more people uh, to commit a crime. That's a conspiracy. So congratulations. And you just did it on Twitter and TikTok. Similarly, what we're seeing is the FBI. People are got really bent out of shape over a, a revelation today. Bob Barr who's the attorney general, said that the FBI was going to be redeploying the JTTFs, or Joint Terrorism Task Forces, in 35 states to address vandalism of statues. And people go, well, shouldn't they be addressing you know, terrorism instead of tearing down statues? Well, two things. First, uh, tearing down a statue to intimidate a civilian population is terrorism 
uh, under U.S. law. And second, these JTTFs don't investigate terrorism per se, um, because terrorism is not a crime in the United States, right? Terrorism is a criminal act which has a terroristic purpose appended to it, right? So there's no crime of terrorism, like you didn't commit the terrorism. What you did is you committed arson, um, and it is domestic terrorism because of the intention behind uh, that that particular act. So we don't, you know, in England, for example, is a prime example. They have a crime called encouragement of terrorism under Section 1 of the Terrorism Act 2006. Uh, in the United States, encouragement of terrorism is known as free speech. Um, so we don't ban that if it's indirect incitement. It has to be direct incitement under something called the Brandenburg test, uh, which basically means that the statement is directed towards the production of imminent lawless action, i.e. like right here, right now, or within very short space of time, uh, and is likely to result in or produce that action. So if you say to someone, let's go over there and beat up that guy right now because he's a Democrat, right? That is a, that is a terroristic uh, incitement, which would be legally punishable. If you said that guy who lives in California, which is 4,000 miles from here, is a Democrat, and boy, if he were here, I'd like to, you know, knock him upside the head to teach him a lesson. If you do that, that's you know, arguably you're encouraging or inciting, but what you're not doing is breaking the law. Um, so we had similar cases. I don't want to recite the specific facts because I don't want a recording of my voice saying the specific words. Um, but Watts versus United States is another similar example involving a threat to the life of the president of the United States, uh, where it was found to have been you know, not, not a threat, not a true threat, as it's known, but something less, a, a rhetorical flourish. So because we don't ban rhetorical flourishes in the United States, um, whenever we're talking about enforcement of this type, you're dealing with uh, you're dealing with normal criminal enforcement procedures, but the terroristic aspect has to do with the motive of the perpetrator rather than the nature and character of the act. Interesting. You mentioned we're not communist China or Russia, but it seems like a lot of the people committing these acts would like us to be at some point. That's what worries me, is if people, like, do you think the people tearing down these statues will be brought to, to justice? I think a lot of them. I think a lot of them will. I mean, if we look at historical examples of other, so this phenomenon of internet-driven rioting is actually pretty new. Um, so historically, if you look at riots, you, so let's look to the last big sort of spate of na nationwide rioting, I think it was '68 probably, um, and then there was the LA riots, which which were in '92. In 68, yes, you had a lot of arrests, right? But you're arresting someone at the scene, whatever, doing doing whatever. It's very difficult after the fact to find out whether someone is rioting or looting or something else because nobody was carrying around a tracking device with them 24-7, 365 and posting the videos to TikTok. With what we're seeing with the monuments, it's actually pretty trivially easy to reconstruct uh, the, the locations of persons at the scene of a crime if you have access to, for example, cell phone location records. Uh, which is something the government can get, or if you have access to, say, Twitter accounts, right? So what most of these people who are tearing down, and there's actually an interesting, interesting speaking of Twitter specifically, um, most where this differs, this whole spate of violence differs from, for example, the Charlottesville riots back in 2017, uh, is that the people who are perpetrating it tend to be on the hard left rather than the hard right. As a consequence, the big tech platforms, which trend, tend to trend hard left or tend to trend left rather than right, have exhibited a greater degree of tolerance for those groups than they would have for right-wing groups. So, for example, the Proud Boys 
uh, have been booted off of virtually every platform under the sun. Um, and that's a right-wing sort of street brawler group. But Antifa has not. Antifa actively posts on Twitter. Uh, and they have, you know, they have their, they have accounts on Twitter and their users use Twitter and they presumably use Twitter to coordinate and communicate with one another. And same with groups that advocate violent armed insurrection on the left. So for example, the John Brown Gun Club, they will have presences, whereas equivalent organizations with right-wing presences will not have, uh, or with right-wing ideologies will not have presences on these big tech platforms. So although the big tech companies may have thought, or moderators, I don't know what they thought, but they may have thought that they were doing these people a favor by allowing them to organize and communicate on their social networks. The problem is that now the FBI has a treasure trove of data. So if they identify a user, they get probable cause for a warrant. They then serve that warrant on Twitter or Facebook or whomever else. Um, what they will get is a copy of everything that user has ever done. I've seen those search warrants before in other settings, um, you know, search warrants that are sent to communications data providers. And they are extensive. They, they ask for every login going back to the history of the account, which means every user agent string that you've got, every IP address that was ever used, any advertising tokens that are associated with the user, any IMEI and device data which is associated with the user, which can then sort of spider walk. So if you know someone used a Twitter account to post a video of crime, and then you, they had the app on their phone, boom, you know who that person is. Um, so even if they use ProtonMail to register their account and whatever else, sorry, you download an app on your phone, um, you know, you're, you're up shit creek at that point, and they're going to find out who you are. So these, there are huge pools of data available about the people who are organizing and orchestrating these protests. The tech companies may think that they're doing these people a favor by allowing them to coordinate and organize on their platforms. Uh, in reality, what has happened is there's kind of a, there's a very, very, very sloppy OPSEC among the people who are doing these riots. So you see that anyone, I mean, the idea that you would post a TikTok video of, of any crime in progress, and particularly a TikTok video of yourself encouraging other people to commit a crime like we saw during the riots, it just like boggles the mind. Uh, but that's what people are doing. So once you have a copy of that video and you know what the user's, you know, the user account is, you know, assuming the user had some sense of um, of what they should or shouldn't be doing, like, you know, okay, I'm going to use a fake email address and whatever else. The minute you know their IP address is the minute you know who they are. So I think we're going to see a lot of, so yes, we aren't seeing arrests now. I suspect we will see arrests later. Um, and they're just going to, they're not going to bring charges until they are absolutely certain that they've got them nailed to the wall. They know who the person Yeah, they lost you. Again. Yeah, they're not going to, so they, at, they're not. All right, let's try this again. <laughs> no video this time. Um, so you're still there? Yeah, yeah. I can hear you loud and clear. Okay. Anyway, yeah, they're not going to bring charges until it'll take years for this to, to work its way through the system. Ah, that is slow. That is very slow. And I, I think that scares people, right? Because people are at home watching all this stuff unravel. And that's, I guess, another point to bring up is how much is the social media and traditional corporate media really stoking things more than. Uh, than they need to be stoked right now. Um, that's just a rhetorical question, but with what you do. And only as much as you let them, right? Exactly. Like, exactly. If, if you let these people get, to, and without a doubt, I think something that people don't talk about enough is that the, uh, 
this is all orchestrated and planned. I do not think that spontaneous nationwide protests, um, you know, emerge without at least a degree of planning from higher groups. This is like, remember the March for Our Lives protests a few years ago? Yep. Um, you know, w within seven days of the event, they had really slick branding, a URL, and everything else like ready to go, like boom. So there, there are people who are who have, you know, there are powerful political interests that have an interest in keeping people divided, right and left. Um, and those people are stoking uh, a lot of anger and engagement on social media. They're you know, conservative Inc has their whole, uh, their whole shtick, which is about getting people riled up and going to Charlie Kirk events. Um, and there are groups on the left who I'm not you know, overly familiar with, but I'm sure there are political, I know there are political organizations raising money off the back of this. Um, so it, it's, it's certainly something where if you don't want to engage, you don't have to. If you don't want to get riled up, you don't have to let them do it to you. And you can engage with these issues in a sensible and level-headed way. Um, much like we do and Pally and I do in our office. He's a Democrat, I'm a Republican. Um, we get along famously and when we talk about things, we don't raise our voices. And I think that's um, that's something which is missing from all levels of politics at this point. Right, there's no discussion. It's just people screaming at each other, uh, right. which isn't productive when you're not able to create empathy and actually try to hear what the yep. other side's saying. Yep, they're screaming for engagement. Everyone wants internet points and the more internet points you get, uh, the wider your reach is, that's the sort of, you know, that, that's the, where the battle is being fought for marginal votes. And um, is that particularly healthy for our society? I don't, I don't think so. Um, you know, it doesn't, if you, you'll see it all the time with tweets. One guy had a tweet up the other day, and um, it was after President Trump fired uh, Jeff Berman, who is the U.S. Attorney at the Southern District of New York, and, um, or U.S. Attorney for the Southern District of New York. So he had a tweet and he read the statute and he goes, oh, my God, the, you know, there's a there's an error in the statute. There's a conflict because blah, 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 blah. And he interpreted the statute. Basically, um, there was a, a marginal, very weird interpretation that you could apply to the statute, which might, you know, potentially if you had a judge uh, with, you know, with dementia uh, result in someone, uh, uh, you know, think or someone who didn't speak English thinking that there is a conflict in the statute. I then retweeted it with a quote and I said, listen, no, that's not the case. You know, here's, here's the explanation. It says that you know, the president may fire any US attorney, no matter who they are. Uh, it doesn't matter who they're, how they're appointed. The statute's silent, there's no conflict here. And sure enough, his tweet got, I think 2000 retweets and mine got 14. So, so like, you know, the, the old expression, um, which is that a lie can get halfway around the world while the truth is still getting its trousers on. Uh, remains true on social media, and it's the things that people engage with the most, which are you know becoming sort of the shared reality uh, for large groups of people, rather than what is actually true and correct. Yeah, it's like similar to uh, the amount of effort needed to um, needed to d uh, disprove bullshit is orders of magnitude harder than it is to put it out there. Um, yeah. Uh, just and hey, I myself I get dragged into it sometimes, but it is there's something in our monkey brains that d draws people to that drama and that division. And that's the sad part yep. about it, right? Is everybody's getting divided, and the people who are fighting on Twitter probably have much more in common than than the people who are trying to divide them. Um, I think the people who are fighting have more in common with each other than the people who are not fighting. I think that's the that is a fair assessment to make. Um, I live in a small town, 
and it's small town politics is very gentle and very uncontroversial. I mean, it's slightly controversial from time to time, but everyone has to deal with each other in the streets, dealing with each other face to face. And so as a consequence, it's not very vicious. And then when we have this national politics, which is, I mean, it doesn't matter like what your opinion is about Donald Trump. It doesn't matter what your opinion is about Joe Biden. You are one of 330 million people in the United States of which, you know, probably 120 million will actually vote in November, maybe less. And your opinions are relevant. You're, 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 it's whatever is happening at the national level is so far abstracted, uh, not only from what you think on a day to day basis, but from what power you actually have as, you know, I'm a resident of a blue state. You know, I have absolutely, my vote is useless. It doesn't matter who I vote for, the outcome of that is predetermined. So for people to then turn around and, and hyper, you know, hyper politicize, um, what uh, you know, hyper politicize that one decision, despite the fact that it's totally irrelevant, and then assume uh, huge amounts of of, of uh, you know bad things about people from the other side simply because they've elected to make that decision, just shows a profound failure to understand or even effort to understand that you know people are capable of arriving at different answers to the same questions based on their experiences and values, which is just you know the human story. People are different. Uh, we're not all the same. What? Are you kidding me? With all this woke capital out there. No, I'm like, okay, sorry, with all this sorry, woke capital, I think, doesn't everybody have to think and act the same? Like, if you don't think this way and act this way, you're against the common man. I mean, I think that there's a lot of, there's always been a lot of value in having a monopoly on the definition of human freedom. Um, and if you study any political ideology, all of them point to human freedom, right? But they have different ways of getting there. Marxism is about liberating people, right? It's it's about liberation. But we saw in practice that it didn't lead to liberation. Um, libertarian thinking is also about liberation of a different kind. But what we, the Marxist would critique us, and I think I'm a libertarian, full disclosure. Uh, the Marxist would critique us, not unjustifiably, by saying that we have the illusion of choice. And in fact, the market makes a lot of the decisions that we would otherwise want to make and that the market dictates the terms of our lives and how we choose to live them uh, in ways that might not be the case if we were living in some socialist utopia. You know, equally valid cr criticism, um, although as between the two options, I think I know how, how I'd live my life. And I think a lot of the, the next generation of solutions that we could have that could make life really better without compromising on either things. So the idea that, you know, we can increase, you know, welfare benefits without increasing taxation by realizing efficiencies through technology or various other things are difficult for people in power to understand because they've been, Nancy Pelosi is 80 years old, Joe Biden's 80 years old, Trump's nearly 80 years old, they're all thereabouts. Um, so these people were born, you know, before the second world war when computers didn't exist or barely existed. And now we live in this hyper-connected world where I, I don't think they really have any cognizance of what technology is capable of, whether it be cryptocurrency and the sort of edgier stuff or just basic information technology that we use in the day-to-day -day setting. So I, I think that there's probably uh, the, the, the disconnect probably arises in part from the fact that our leaders don't understand the societies they govern. And so they're not really capable of figuring out how, you know, they're, where the points of commonality are anymore. So things seem like they're different and it seems like we're 
you know, pulling ourselves apart, but it's really because the leadership is just not in touch with the way the world actually works. And so as a consequence, they've drawn these artificial battle lines and they're leading their tribes into battle, um, you know, the red tribe and the blue tribe um, in, in, in ways that don't make political sense and, and just don't make technological or social sense either. Yeah, and that's something I've always, or not always, but have been wondering more since I've been uh, paying attention to Bitcoin over like the last seven years is thinking of the U.S. government and the three branches of that government and how it works mechanically. And like, does it even make sense today? Like, why do we have a president, uh, House of Representatives, Congress, and nine members of judiciary, um, specifically with Congress and the House of Reps, like their mechanical operation when our republic was created was to meet in a centralized location and speak on behalf of their constituents because you couldn't have everybody show up in a central place to do that and speak for I themselves if, i'm not calling for like direct democracy or anything like that but yeah nothing so dangerous gosh um no i mean i think the model still makes sense the problem is that we've been doing it for so long and we've gotten so fat on the fruits of our empire that that the government is now the this federal government is this winner take all proposition with absolute power where you know the stakes for control are incredibly high when they don't necessarily need to be you know i don't have an issue with some representative speaking on my behalf as long as i can fire that representative every two years and that representative you know approximates um you know the views of millions of people i think that that having people who serve that function and perform that task is useful and valuable and um and i don't have an issue with representative democracy i think it works great uh, where I do have an issue is the the sort of issues that our representative democracy has decided are within its remit to decide. Um, chief among them, the fact that they think that they can control up to 50% of GDP. And I think this year it will be north of 50% of GDP will be uh, determined by government expenditure. So if that weren't the case, maybe we could find more to agree on. But the fact is control of government has become this crucial you know, absolutely critical life or death struggle because government controls half of everything at this point. This was not the case in 1900 when government was less than 5% of GDP. Now it's north of 50. Um, and there are various theories for why that's happened. Some people say, well, uh, it's because our you know governments are sophisticated and we're morally enlightened. So we think that you know, you need to have vast armies of bureaucrats and um, and vast quantities of funding for social welfare systems. That's one way to look at it. Another way to look at it uh, is the way that Joseph Tainter, who's a collapse theorist, looks at it. And he says that as societies get bigger, uh, they get more complex. And so as a consequence, they become more expensive to administer. So a society which is relatively new and simple and small will have a simple set of rules and a low amount of overhead. Uh, rather like in Civ 4, right, you get to choose your mode of government, and the simpler your form of government, um, you know, <laughs> the less gold you lose per turn. It's the same principle with a bureaucratic society as opposed to, a, you know, a, an early bureaucratic and a late bureaucratic. Um, there was a great illustration we had once in law school, so I'm an English lawyer and an American lawyer. And in law school, they showed us all the laws that have been written up till 1997 uh, in England and Wales, and it was like two volumes. And then after 1997, there were another 10 volumes of laws that had been written, or 15, that took up two shelves on this rolling bookshelf. 
And you have to ask yourself, well, what changed? What changed was you got the new labor government under Tony Blair that decided they were going to vastly expand the administrative state, the number of entities that they were going to be that administered various aspects of everyday life. They had new kinds of orders which were created called antisocial behavior orders, and they had these sort of diet police called um, police community support officers or PCSOs, which would wander around and enforce those new rules. So they just decided at some point, the, the society went insane and decided that it made a lot of sense for there to be many, many, many more rules uh, than there were before. And so we're going we're gonna to pass all those rules now and everyone had better, better get on board. Um, it's, so it's, societies do this. When at a certain, after a certain point, they decide that they have, they have not micromanaged themselves enough. So they begin micromanaging every little aspect uh, of social life. And I think that's what's happened in the U.S. is that we've got way too much government, way too much control, um, way too much interference in sort of day-to-day -day decisions that people make uh, about you know, the smallest little things. And, and I don't see that changing anytime soon, particularly post-COVID, where the government has basically kind of assumed control of all of society. It's assumed control of whether you can go out and have dinner. Um, and so what, you know, whether you can go to church, all those kinds of decisions are now in the hands of the state. And I, I wonder and, and, and suspect that they won't be rolled back after this is complete. They're never rolled back. These things are never temporary. And this comment Sarah's made me wonder, is this just like a natural entropy towards socialism or complete control of the purse uh, via the government and in these democracies, republics. I have no idea. I just practice law. I'm not. A, I don't see the future. Um, so groundhogs see the future. Actually, that's a good point because every February second, the groundhog comes out and tells us whether we're going to have six more weeks of winter. Um, <laughs> so that's one of their. That's one of their powers, uh, which are many and considerable. But um, yeah, I, I, I don't know where. I don't know where this ends. Um, it, it's a problem that has hit every country in the world at the same time. Um, I think the, the Western democracies are at a weird point in their development where they're really not, not growing anymore. They're all starting to contract. Uh, they've expended you know, most of their natural resources. There's not really anywhere for them to go at this point. So it'll be, and there are other people who, they're like the environmental collapse theorists. So guys like James Howard Kunstler, um, who look at this as sort of the beginning of a long 50 to 100 year crisis where it will just be one crisis after another crisis after another crisis engendered by resource depletion and other things. So oil, right? So the collapse of oil fields in places like Syria and Iraq and Saudi Arabia are imminent. And when that happens, uh, what will happen to those regions, right? And how will that then affect our societies back home? The U.S. kind of got a reprieve from that because we found vast quantities of shale oil and figured out how to get it out of the ground. So we got, we got a pass, right? So we, we got to avoid that reckoning but the rest of the world isn't going to be that lucky and that question is still you know looming around the corner what happens if you know the people say well peak oil production and peak oil consumption have both passed and maybe that's true and maybe it isn't but we live in a finite world and um we are starting to see the limits of what human ingenuity can do when faced with nature and what happens when nature decides to push back and what that does to a human society um so tbd what will happen if nature starts to push back more throughout the 2100s uh, or, or the 2000s, sorry, the 2000s, not the 2100s, it's 100 years from now. <laughs> but, um, you know, over the course of the next century, we're going to start seeing what happens when we start running out of resources, global warming, all that kind of stuff. Uh, and it'll be really interesting to see what our, how our societies react to that. 
Well, what are we at? Eight billion people now. Uh, north of that, I think. Yeah. I think it's even more. Yeah, it's pretty crazy to think of. Uh, how hyper connected we are with all this technology and it seems like the technology is not slowing down at all so maybe that's cause for optimism that maybe we'll figure things out with with technology but it's also led to a lot of problems but i want to circle back on what you said about like rolling back uh the laws and the powers that have been given to the government uh because of covid i mean we've seen this time and time again uh go back to 9-11 after that we got the patriot act which is supposed to be temporary and only target uh terrorists but that has turned into a system that gets renewed or an, an act that gets renewed continually and has been turned against american citizens we mentioned how it's pretty easy to identify these uh, protesters pulling down statues with metadata and ip and co-locating them with social media accounts uh and now with all this COVID tracking, like, are we moving towards a, a like Chinese social credit system, and how how could we stop that uh, if if that seems inevitable? I think they're different questions. Um, the U.S. is actually, I think, gives the most of all of the countries uh, with which I'm familiar. The U.S. gives me the most cause for optimism in terms of at least formal protections for civil liberties associated with tech. There is, of course, the renewed push at the moment to ban cryptography coming from the DOJ, uh, which they do every 10 years and they fail every 10 years because it would make the internet broken and unusable. Um, so that's <laughs> that's one aspect. Um, in terms of procedural protections, in the US, you still need a warrant or a subpoena to get a hold of this data, right? So it, the government, companies are not at liberty to, to act as a fire hose to the state. So people complain, oh, Facebook is spying on me and giving all the data to the FBI. No, you're giving your data to Facebook. And if Facebook, if the FBI has you know, probable cause or reasonable suspicion to think that you're involved in a crime and there's evidence of that crime on your Facebook account, then then and only then um, are you going to see a subpoena or a process issued and that record disclosed to the government. Um, so that, that's an important point to make. And I don't see that changing anytime soon. In terms of social credit, Social credit's really a state, it's a state enforced system of ostracism to punish people for wrong think. And so in China, of course, they, there is no procedural protection if you have data on Weibo or something, Weibo, excuse me, or, um, or WeChat or something like that. The state can just reach in and access it really with a, with a modicum of process and not what you would expect, you know, at least here in the United States. But social credit is a way that they punish people for, um, for transgressions. I've been contacted by people now who are complaining about private harassment, and I'm not going to go into details, but there are people who are being privately harassed by classmates, workmates, whatever else, for some inconvenient opinion uh, in a manner that is essentially for retaliation for some other thing, but because they hold an inconvenient opinion, um, they are using that inconvenient opinion to achieve some other objective, to cause the person to get evicted, to cause the person to lose their job, lose their home, that kind of stuff. So people are starting to behave uh, in a fashion, a mob-like fashion against other people. Uh, just They're denouncing them, right, just for fun. And in the U.S., the government is not free to, um, to act on that, right? The government can't ostracize people. It would be a violation of the, uh, of the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment. You're not allowed to do it. Um, 
but what people are doing is they're starting to do it on an individual basis and pressuring employers and 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 landlords and universities and various other things just to get people just to cause havoc in people's lives. So we saw today a kid named Jaden McNeil from uh, University of Kansas posted a highly offensive tweet, uh, which I'm not going to repeat. Uh, and the University of Kansas said, "We're you know we've been contacted and we're going to investigate our options." Now the University of Kansas knows full well what its options are. Uh, its options are precisely jack because it's a public university and public universities are bound by the First Amendment. But they're still going to gang up on this kid and make his life miserable and probably try to push him out of the school because he said something highly offensive online and a massively online mob decided that that wasn't, wasn't going to be acceptable and that he, his life should be ruined as a consequence. So we're just seeing people get used to it. They're, they're assuming that this is kind of something which is now done. Uh, and they're sitting at home bored, unable to go anywhere on their computers, and they're just you know, occupying their time by going after people on the internet with whom they disagree. Um, so China's social credit is state enforced. Over here, we've got the same thing. The first, but it's the First Amendment which enforces it in the way. Government can't step in and stop this. Um, it's not within its power to do that. Um, really, the only recourse you have as someone who is canceled is you can sue for defamation. Uh, that, that's certainly an option. Or you can, um, or you can sue for harassment, right? Or, or you can report the people who are doing it for cyber stalking or something like that. But again, you know, police, you know, it's very unlikely the police are going to have a lot of time to look into that, especially if the threats aren't credible. So it's, it's an interesting time. It's, they're two you know, opposite sides of the same coin. We're just trying to silence people who disagree with official, you know, inf official in quotation marks, uh, narratives. And we're just seeing it just in all aspects of society. Um, you know, I know personally more than one person, um, to, you know, to whom this has happened. And I had someone who I knew in crypto for years um, who turned around and tried to do it to me. And I told him to go fuck himself. Pardon my French, but that's pretty much what I said. Uh, but I, like, <laughs> I said, really, is that, is that what you're going to do? That, that's how you want to end on this note? And uh, as a courtesy to him, because I won't stoop to that level, uh, I, I, will, I choose not to name that individual. Um, but you know, it's just, it's, it's just stupid. <laughs> like, why can't people just get on with their own damn lives and uh, mind their own damn business? I, I just don't understand. Yeah. I think, uh, more individuals need to tell others to go fuck themselves. Uh, leave me the fuck alone. Um, no, no, but with like the COVID tracking though, like, could you see that as, uh, an attack vector to bring a state sanctioned social credit? to the U.S., like uh, stopping people from doing things because they've come into contact with someone that the app perceives is at, uh, a danger? The people are already doing that. They're doing it on a, and it's And it's illegal, I think, when people are doing this. So, for example, the state of Connecticut, New York, and New Jersey, uh, initially states like Florida said, you know, people coming from Connecticut and Connecticut citizens who come to Florida, uh, they, they have to be quarantined on arrival. Um, and again, you, you can't do that because the Privileges and Immunities Clause says you can't discriminate against other U.S. citizens. So Governor Raimondo of Rhode Island figured this out after she gave her order that New Yorkers were to be quarantined on entry, um, which, you know, in principle and only when joking and strictly as a joke, I would support um, just to give people from New York a hard time. Um, or as we like to call New York and Connecticut, we call it Greater Connecticut. It's it's really it belongs to us. They just they just live there. But um, <laughs> yeah. so 
I mean, Connecticut really is is the center of the United States conceptually, economically, uh, you know, socially and culturally. Um, but most people don't acknowledge this. So, um, you know, it's it's not New York City, but really, you know, New Haven, which which is the center of the universe, in my opinion. Um, so anyway, the so Raimondo, Governor Raimondo turned around and then corrected her order and said anyone coming into Rhode Island from outside, which is a const potentially constitutionally valid order, um, at least from the perspective of the Privileges and Immunities Clause. Because if you are from Rhode Island and you cross into Rhode Island and you are from Wyoming and you cross into Rhode Island, you will receive the same treatment. What we're seeing now is states starting to single out other uh, you know, citizens of other states so or travelers from other states. Uh, and I, I'm not sure you can do that legally, um, but they're doing it anyway, right? And so you have two options. Either you can you know, disobey the order, get pulled over, and get cited, uh, or you can obey the order and challenge it, you know, not challenge it, and just wait your 10-day, 14-day uh, quarantine. Or if you want, you can bring a lawsuit, and maybe it'll be granted cert by the Supreme Court five years from now, right? So those are your, those are your options. And so most people, when presented with those options, are uh, electing not to challenge those orders. Where we are seeing challenges succeed, so for example, just earlier this afternoon, um, Bill de Blasio and Governor Cuomo can no longer uh, ban religious gatherings because they were uh, the, the rulings were not generally applicable. So they were targeting specific religious uh, settings for, for um with their coronavirus regulations, and that is constitutionally prohibited. And also, they were allowing certain things like protests when they weren't when they weren't allowing religious services. So you can't do that under the Constitution. You can't discriminate against people, and you can't uh, have targeted regulations that target religious gatherings uh, and are not of general application. So I have a lot of hope to, that we're not going to see coronavirus backdoors for civil liberties. Um, but it's going to have to work. It's, it, all of these challenges are going to have to get worked out in the courts. Um, and it'll just, again, you know, circling back to something we said at the beginning, you, it, during times like this, this all looks very frightening from an outside perspective. And if you allow people with an agenda to rile you up, whether they're on the right or the left, um, based on you know, incorrect information, then then you're playing in the, you're playing a game where you are you are the sucker and you are going to lose and the other you know the only people who win are the people who are trying to rile you up um, you know the other side doesn't win or lose you your side doesn't win or lose the people who are looking for engagement and donations win um, and you lose so because you lose your time um, so I think I just have a lot of confidence in the justice system that things are going to work out to sit back let it happen and and uh, you know let it run its course that's not a very popular you know, engagement-friendly way of doing things, and it's not, it doesn't respond to that sort of human desire to have a quick answer where, yeah, we think X, um, and we think it right now, and we think it very emphatically. Um, but the fact is, that that's, that's the way our system works, is that we have to sit back and wait and watch things unfold. And, you know, the people who are tearing down the statues, they're you know, innocent until proven guilty, and they're entitled to a full trial and you know, for a jury of their peers. Um, and to a robust and vigorous defense. So, you know, there, that's, that's another principle of our system, right? So although, you know, we can get riled up about statues, the solution is not to take these people and throw them in jail forever right now. No, the solution is let law enforcement do its job. Let them prove that a crime was committed. A crime may not have been committed. They may have been standing there watching it, and they might not have pulled the statue down or been encouraging. They may have merely been present, which is not in and of itself a crime. Um, and so we have to let these mechanisms play out in order to, 
you know, that's in order to ensure that due process is afforded to everybody on all sides. I'm gaining some peace of mind here in this conversation. I think uh, I've definitely let the corporate media and social media instigators get to me a little bit over the last couple of months, but feeling we all have, we're all, we, we all have done this. We have all, I've been guilty of it. Everyone's guilty of it, but there's not a, there, there needs to be some kind of techno Zen movement, right? Where people just kind of assume they release all attachments and just kind of float through life, right? Some kind of like new Zen. I don't know what the hell it's going to be. But there are a couple of possible responses to cancel culture. One of them is that everyone goes anonymous uh, and and behind a behind you know behind eleven proxies or whatever the joke is. Um, I think it's behind seven proxies was the original meme. But um, so everyone goes anonymous behind a bunch of proxies and hopes they'll never and anyone producing original content hopes they'll never be outed. Um, so that's one possibility, and I think that's a possibility which is becoming more present and real as every passing day uh, occurs. Um, as we saw with Slate Star Codex, right? So people disagreed with Scott Alexander for a lot of things. New York Times was going to dox him. Uh, then the people said, well, that's unfair. You shouldn't dox him. And then the people who disagreed with him said, you know, dox him. He was an asshole and irredeemable and a, and a fascist. And, um, and so, yeah, that's, you know, that's a perfect example of, of what's going on. Um, another option might be that people just learn and our society adapts and suddenly you just kind of learn to roll with the punches and people who scream are, are into the void or viewed as uh, shrill and awful and that behavior becomes culturally unacceptable. So maybe we're going to move into a world where it is as unacceptable to screech like one of those, you know, like one of the pod people from um, the body snatchers and, mm-hmm. uh, as you know, as it is today, to be on the receiving end of that, right? So, or as it would be to walk up to someone in the street and screech at them, right? So maybe we adopt a digital, you know, version of that where that becomes a social norm. I don't see this what we're doing now as being sustainable for very long, because anyone who's had an even remotely interesting or maybe off-piece opinion uh, is going to be at some point asked to answer for it. And you know, if the answer is anything other than you know GFY. Um, you know, that's, which is my answer to, to most people who disagree with me. Um, it's not GFY, but like, it's, you know, reasonable people can disagree, take people as you find them and don't discriminate. Like if you have a problem with that, like, and then if you have a problem with any of those statements, then I have nothing to say to you. <laughs> like, so it's, it's a really, it's a really simple, uh, it's a really simple equation. So I don't know it's a weird world we're living in. Um, it's a weird time. The time is particularly weird because people are losing their jobs by the millions and they're locked inside and all of their usual outlets aren't available for them. Um, so I think there's some added weirdness which COVID has brought about. But like, you know, what can what can we do other than just sit and wait it out and hope that when it's over, everything's still standing? Yeah. Yeah. It'll be interesting to see how this all plays out. Um before we transition to like Bitcoin and the law, just one final thing on like social media platforms. What, like if any, like this so is the whole debate of platform versus publishers coming up. Trump, what was it? Section 13 yep. was the two thirty. Two thirty. Um, way a off. dentist, uh, Niraj, Niraj Agarwal called it uh, a dentist's favorite law. Section two thirty. <laughs> Get it? Yes. <laughs> Anyway, anyway, sorry. Anyway, continue. Um, 
Yeah. So what, like, what are you, what is your view on that? Like, cause obviously cancel culture comes on the social media. People get banned. Milo got banned. First they came for Milo. Yep. Then they came for Alex Jones. Yep. Now they come for anybody else who, who has wrong think. Um, yep. And the whole, so, they're private companies obviously, but Nick Carter's made the case that, uh, developing a reputation on these platforms sort of gives you uh, a claim on digital property, if you will. I, what are your views yep. on all this? So there is a, we'll deal with the second thing rather than the first. You, they, you do have an ownership interest in what you produce for social media. Uh, that ownership interest is known as copyright. Um, so anything that you produce through a social media platform, you have copyright over and you have an exclusive right under the Copyright Act to display, use, produce, derive, blah, 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 anything you want from it. Now, when you put it on a social media platform, you license all of that content to the social media platform so that they can go and redisplay it as they see fit. So if you didn't give Twitter a license to display your work when you posted it on Twitter, technically, Twitter would be infringing your copyright when it then posted your own tweet. So you have property. That property is your content, right? The copyright in your content is in forever. Sorry about that. That's my office is, uh, internet is horrible. It's all good. So um, where were we? You have content. So you have, co- you have, you have, content, you have right? copyright to and that. You have copyright to that. And then the, the platform has, you have access to the platform, right? And those are two different things. The platform has the right to determine whether you have continu- or continued right of access to it under something called Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act. And what that basically says is that, well, firstly, you, you give them that right in the contract that you agree to when you use it. Second, um, yeah, we're still recording. So second, there's a thing called Section 230, which creates two unique uh, immunities for platforms. The first, Section 230C1, says that the platform is not liable for content that is produced by other information content providers, nor are any users. So Twitter, if Alice and Twitter uh, are using Twitter and Bob says something nasty about Carol on Twitter, Bob cannot sue, well, he can sue, but he'll lose. But he, in principle, he cannot sue Twitter or Alice, or excuse me, Carol cannot sue Twitter or Alice for the stuff that Bob said. So basically it means the person who's saying something is the person who's responsible for it. The second bit, 230C2, says that, again, let's use Alice as a user of the platform, Bob as a user, and Carol is also a user. Bob says something nasty about Carol and Twitter bans Bob. Bob can't then sue Twitter for either banning him or moderating his content off of the platform because there is a uh, immunity for good faith uh, moderation decisions which are designed to limit access to objectionable material. So with those two things together, which is that the platforms aren't liable for what other people say on them and the platforms aren't liable for removing content they find objectionable, you have a situation where the platform cannot be sued for allowing speech or removing speech. And so people object to that because they say, listen, that makes the platforms the arbiters of speech. Um, and that shouldn't be the case. Well, you know, you have options at this point. You can go to another platform. You, can, you, know, you won't have the equivalent reach on those other platforms, which are smaller, that adopt, you know, that permit uh, a wider range of content or more objectionable content without being censored. But those platforms do exist. So it's uh, so that, that's the discussion, basically. It's not a question of platform or publisher. It just means that anyone who runs a website where there's user-generated content, whether it be the New York Times, whether it be Random House Penguin, whether it be Twitter, whether it be Facebook, whether it be the comments section on your blog, 
Um, you have the right to allow all content without being liable for it if you didn't write it, and you have the right to remove content that you find objectionable. And I think that's a totally fair and appropriate arrangement that, frankly, on balance, supports uh, free speech rather than harms it. it. It rubs people the wrong way, myself included at times, like thinking, like, hey, this is a public square. You should be able to stand up on your soapbox and, and have your voice heard no matter what you're saying. Um yeah, but I mean that's that's the same fallacy that that companies make when they get too reliant on like an app store or the Facebook you know developer environment or something else, right? If you lose API access to, if you build your product on top of someone else's product, and that someone else decides to change their product or revoke your API access for whatever reason, you're done, right? So like that's if you if you have that dependency, uh, you're finished. So I think a lot of people who are creating social media content uh, because they're not devs they understand they don't understand that they're basically baking in a dependency uh, for their business and that dependency is their their followings on various websites you know so if I freely admit you know if I if my Twitter account got nuked that wouldn't be great I wouldn't like it um, but it's ultimately not I'm not an internet personality I'm an attorney and people come to me not because I tweet they come to me because I practice law. Uh, and, and happen to understand blockchains a little better than most people, I like to think. So that's um, that, that's that's the difference there. Um, I think a lot of the internet personalities, the meme masters, and you know, people who are producing memes, who are political grifters, uh, who rely on engagement direct in a very direct sort of way to in order to put food on the table, um, they're going to be more vulnerable to that. But it's really their own fault, which is that they allowed one company to be a dependency for their empire, their business, uh, instead of investing in multiple platforms and multiple sets of different users. So there's no reason why, I mean, there are a bunch of different platforms out there now, MindsGab, Parlay, BitChute, Library, or half a dozen of the, of the bigger ones. And there's no reason why anyone who is an internet you know, person or business should be focusing on, you know, I'm just gonna rely on Twitter and YouTube. I know that there's this problem out there, and I'm just going to keep focusing on Twitter and YouTube. I think to do that would be now, under the circumstances, is totally foolhardy. But people are going to keep doing it because they're not going to think in terms of risk mitigation and that this can happen to them. Um, so, so where we are is this weird position where people say it's censorship. I don't. It is censorship, but it's not censorship which should be illegal um, because ultimately they should have made the decision way, way back to diversify and spread their eggs out among many baskets. Uh, instead of just saying, "Listen, this is my strategy. I'm going to go," it's like it's like they're it's like almost like the drug addicts, right? They know that they're going to get the most engagement by hitting this one platform, boom, 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 again and again, and so they ignore the rest of their lifestyle. And what happens is when they when they have the thing removed from them, all of a sudden, like there's there's nothing left. There's no part of their business because they've been juicing it constantly with uh, you know with the big platforms and ignoring the sort of safety net that they need in order to survive. So people are learning that the hard way. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense, and that's why I like having a personal site uh, on top of the newsletter. I mean, I don't plan on getting canceled or anything anytime soon, but it's nice, like you said, safety net to have to know. It gives peace of mind to know that I have that property that I control. Um, even though it doesn't get much yep. traffic, it's still there. <laughs> uh, yep. Right, so you... you segued into this pretty perfectly you know blockchain law very well um and you're somebody i've been following on twitter for for years now because of this uh so let's start with the uh, amir taki uh 
quoting you. I don't know if this has anything to do with law, but I think it does really show your uh, understanding of cryptocurrency, at least in my eyes. That uh, if... well, um, excuse me, one second. I'm on a on a call. Sorry. The um, so Amir Taki, um, Amir Taki is basically like the tech world's answer to Ernest Hemingway. Um, so <laughs> he's awesome. So he's he's a crypto anarchist guy who um, worked on a project called Dark Wallet a while back. Currently, he's got another company that he's associated with. But like he's he's super um, he's super super badass. He went to Syria to go fight, you know, on behalf of the Kurds who apparently are America's allies. Um, and that's I mean I'm I'm way way not that I would do that. Firstly, I don't I don't think it's you know legally a very smart idea. Um, but also I'm a big wimp. And so, but Amir's like, he, like how many people right now on Twitter are talking a whole bunch of trash about, uh, are talking a whole bunch of trash about, oh yeah, well we'll go in the streets and we'll fight the other side and we'll do this. Amir actually like went to Syria and like picked up a weapon and like went and fought for freedom, uh, against ISIS. Like that, that's, you know, whatever, whatever you may think about, uh, Amir Taki, um, he did that, and I, I don't know anyone else who, who had the balls to do that. So, you know, props to him. Uh, he quoted me today, so that made me sort of giggle, uh, which was which was wonderful because getting quoted by Amir Taki, and it was a quote about stable coins. I'm trying to find it here. Basically, stable coins are rubbish. Um, so my background in chains is that back in 2013-14, I was in London where the whole Ethereum thing was kicking off. I've been following Bitcoin back and forth for about a year since early 2013. Um, and then got really into it actually when Dogecoin launched because then a penny dropped and I was like, oh my God, they're going to be millions of these things. <laughs> um, but really, that was it. Like when Dogecoin was launched, that was for me the moment when I was all in and I was like, that's it. I'm going in. This is where it's, it's, it was over. At that point, I was just like, you're right, cool. My, my old life is over. I am a Bitcoiner now. Um, and so it was, uh, that was how it kicked off. And what we did is a bunch of us, um, two other guys, a guy named Tyler Jackson, who's a quantum mathematician who currently works for DeepMind, and uh, Casey Coleman, who currently runs the company we founded. Uh, it's now a legal tech company. It's pivoted a couple of times. Um, we decided we were going to take this blockchain stuff and try to make it useful for enterprises. And we didn't know why we were doing it, right? We said, listen, we have a hunch that these, and that was really the pitch, right? It was, listen, we've got a hunch that this stuff that we're working with now uh, is going to be increasingly relevant both for political reasons uh, and for efficiency reasons. We think it's going to be more efficient to have two verifiable copies of the same file in two different places uh, that are updating in tandem, but we also think that there are likely going to be some political uh, implications. And uh, we're actually the original paper we wrote, I can verify this, um, because it was up on uh, H+, which is the sort of transhumanism website. The original paper we wrote, we were talking about the problems with centralized data stacks like Google and Amazon and others uh, being, being basically single points of failure for uh, companies that needed data processing. So that was what this permission blockchain thing started as. It was saying, listen, maybe there will be in the future some set of circumstances where some company or some person is going to be denied access, not to the financial system, but to data processing, right? To Amazon, to Google, to something like that. And they may want to communicate with other people. And this is a way that we can do that. Now, of course, the early customers for this 
were from predominantly banks because that's who was focusing on blockchain stuff at the time. So we went around and sold the stuff to banks and guys like Chris DeRose were like, oh, it's a perpetual motion machine. Oh, it's an inefficient database. And we, at the time we were like, you know what? You're absolutely right. It is 100% an inefficient database. But we think that there's a problem that these things solve and we're not quite sure what it is yet. Now as we start to go into, so there are two things. First, we've seen Facebook is now deploying one of these things in Libra. Uh, which and they've apparently designed one which is very very good and very very performant. So the the slow database criticism is falling away as you start to see improvements in the design of these systems. Uh, at which point you're just left with the replication issue, right? And whether that having a replicated database makes more sense than not having a, a replicated database and using a master-slave model to communicate just like any other server. So that's the first thing. The second thing is we are now starting to see the denial of access to data processing facilities. So whereas in 2014, it was unheard of for someone to be deplatformed from Facebook, uh, it let alone, you know, Apple's infrastructure or Google's infrastructure. With Alex Jones, we saw a deplatforming across a range of different platforms. With Gab.com, we saw a deplatforming across a range of infrastructure. With Laura Loomer, same thing. Payments, internet, email, Google, like all of it. Milo Yiannopoulos, the same thing. And now what we're starting to see is gradually more and more deplatforming happening, and it's more and more centrist. So a guy named Carpe Donctum, who's a meme, you know, meme manufacturer, was booted off Twitter uh, apparently for DMCA violations. Um, but I, you know, query, you know, we're taking Twitter's word for it. I don't know what their internal process was for, um, you know, how many DMCA complaints or whether he'd been a repeat infringer or et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So long story short. Um, we are starting to see now this deplatforming phenomenon where data uh, is data processing is being withdrawn for political reasons, um, and it's it's a weird world, and it's kind of a world that Bitcoin was built for, um, but it's a world that in two, in 2014 we didn't know we kind of had like a dim maybe a dim awareness that something like this could happen, um, but now that we're seeing it happen, I think it really validates a lot of the thinking that people had around blockchain tech generally. Um, and Bitcoin specifically. Wait, so you bullish on Libra? Is this what I'm getting from that? I'm bullish on. I'm bullish on. I don't. I don't know how bullish I am on Libra. Um, I have heard very good things about their technology. Um, does that mean I'm bullish about the project? That's a very different question. Uh, I think I'll, I'll hold. You know, hold my answer on that for another day. Um, but I've heard the technology is good, and so credit where it's due. Yeah, the tech could be good, but I don't see any situation in which Libra wouldn't censor and deplatform the way. Oh yeah, from that from that standpoint, I think Libra will absolutely deplatform people at a whim, um, or on a whim, and um, uh, yeah, for sure. I, I don't. Libra is not going to be a force for freedom in the world. What it might be is a way of delivering cryptographic primitives into financial institutions and other types of companies so that they can then have an infrastructure in place which they can use to interact with um, mainstream uh, with mainstream financial systems or, or, or cryptocurrencies excuse me so if libra does it and then all of a sudden everyone gets accustomed to using uh, pki like you know bitcoin style pki maybe that opens the door for bitcoin's wider use um and you know if they figure out how to use a wallet, maybe that opens the door for Bitcoin wallets. So I think Libra will wind up being a net positive simply because it's something which people will use and it's so similar to what already ah, exists. So it's like a stepping stone. 
if you will. Yeah. Um, man, that's fa- fascinating stuff. Do you think? Do you think the U.S. Congress will let Libra launch? Obviously, that's been a huge point of contention. It's not Congress's call. Yeah. It's not. It's not Congress's call. I mean, it's this is. Yeah, the financial regulations exist. Libra either complies with them or it doesn't. And if it doesn't, it's going to have a you know problem with the Department of Justice. Um, and if it does, or maybe and potentially maybe the SEC. Um, so it's not it's not Congress. It's not Congress's. Uh, it's yeah, it's not Congress's call here. The laws already exist, and Libra has to structure its affairs to operate within. Yeah, yeah, they've tried to uh, scare them up to this point. It seems. Oh, for sure. Yeah, for sure. And. I guess you've been following Ethereum for quite some time too, and the ICO boom of a few years ago. And you mentioned the law is slow and grinding. Do you think we will see any um, action against some of the ICO? I mean, we already have seen for a few, but you think we'll see larger action um, in that space, particularly? I know the conversations. I know some conversations are happening. I'm not going to say which ones or how I know. Um, but I know that some conversations are happening around some of the larger projects. Um, TBD, what actually is done? Um, that depends on the you know the quality of the lawyers and the and uh, you know how motivated the SEC or other uh, other financial regulatory enforcers uh, decide they want to get. We haven't seen anything from FinCEN, for example, uh, with regard to ICO issuance, even though arguably. And I'm pretty sure in FinCEN's view, launching a, a, an ICO is money transmission. Um, so, But we just haven't seen any enforcement from then on. Those TBD, whether there is such enforcement, I don't know. Um, we just haven't seen it. And so, yeah, the reason we haven't seen it, that was all in 2017. That was three years ago where all of this, the big boom happened uh, three to four years ago. And we still haven't seen a whole, a whole lot of enforcement. Yeah. No, I mean, it was pretty egregious at the time following it. Somebody writing about it too uh summer 2017 went to a consensus (laughs) meetup and they were just openly telling companies like hey you should launch this This is a great way to raise money i was like "Uh, i don't know the reason i left my company is because my investors wanted to do an ico and um and that was in 2017 and i look i took one look at that and i was like nope not doing it um they wound up they wound up not doing it um but they they wound up doing something else instead. But um, they're basically right. I, I took one look at that stuff, and it, it was really hard to walk away from because everyone else was doing it. And when everyone else is doing something, and you say no, I'm not going to do it because I think I'm right and everyone else is wrong. <sighs> How to put it? Uh, VCs think you're an asshole, <laughs> so they think they think, wow, what an arrogant little twerp, thinking that he uh, you know knows the way uh, uh, that this is going to go and how this is going to end. And we don't, and Tim Draper doesn't and Andreessen Horowitz doesn't and Barry Silver doesn't and blah, 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 blah. So I, I very much put my money where my mouth was when it came to ICOs in terms of, you know, someone said, listen, you, you know, you either are going to go along with this or not. And uh, there's a large amount of money on the other side. If you go along with it, I said, you know what, screw you. I'm, I'm going to go. I, and at that point, what I did is I left the company uh, and went back to law school here in the U S so I could get my U.S. law degree sorted out because at the time I was only uh, admitted in England. So that's um, that's a yeah, the ICO story is an interesting story. It's not a story that's over. It's a story where I very much put my money where my mouth was, and it turns out I was right. So I hope that people 
uh, think I will continue to be right about things. That is kind of how I. <laughs> that's, that's how I, you know. That's that's kind of what that was all about. People were like, "So why are you so anti ICO?" And I was like, "You know, because when it all falls apart, I want them to remember that I was the one who told them what was what they didn't want to hear, uh, and that no one else would had had the guts to do it, um, or very few other people. I wasn't the only one. There were several of us." But I was one of the loudest, and um, yeah. So that was that was my my play in the ICO. My investment was in betting that was all it was all going to go pear shaped, and uh, and when it did, that was that was a, I think a very positive result uh, in terms of uh, you know not being embarrassed uh, by by the yeah. outcome. Yeah, it was the revolution. It was crazy how that was another mass psychosis. People or relatively small mass psychosis let's be real there's not too many people in this space at this point but uh it was ridiculous watching it from the sidelines and 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 how quickly it imploded and how quickly ethereum's narrative has changed now they're on the eth 2.0 and whether or not that comes to fruition i'm I'm highly skeptical of uh but that is uh it's very been very interesting watching the the ethereum pivots throughout the years Ethereum's problem is that it writes it writes checks that the code can't cash, and if you if you indicate that at the and, and then the investors don't care, right? So like that's the problem with criticizing Ethereum is that it like nobody gives a damn because everyone who believes in it has such conviction um, and is really really good at selling it. So their memes overpower your memes. I remember when Ethereum was supposed to be the world computer. Was going to process all the world's transactions of all kinds, um, you know, large and small, no matter you know, no matter how trivial, and that turned out to be wrong. And there was a, I remember back in 2016, I think in July or August, there was a zero hedge article that said, you know, soon Ethereum will will uh, surpass a million transactions per second, and will be able to compete with AWS. It's a world computer. I, That's what you have to do. It's absurd. I mean, it's totally, totally absurd. So, so they, someone actually said this, and I, I questioned on my blog, and I continue to question. I asked, where did that come from? Who, which jerk at which company fed that particular story to that particular blogger so that that particular piece of information would come out at that time? Um, and I'd love to know the answer. I really would. Um, but I suspect I will never find it. Because it's so wrong, it's so bogus. Because Ethereum is not a computer, right? It's a it's a state machine that only responds when a user calls it. So the blockchain isn't going to do anything unless some computer sitting somewhere else decides it's going to broadcast a transaction which initiates a state transition in a smart contract. So it can't be the world computer. It is more like the world ledger, which you can open and write in, and it limits how you can write, right? Just like Bitcoin or anything else. So those representations were so dishonest um, that, and that's a useful thing, but it's not a world computer, right? So <laughs> that was the thing that really got me about ETH, um, is that they really oversold it uh, early on. But at the same time, they've still managed to build something which worked, which hasn't really broken in any material way, which is in, on its own impressive. They've got a very good community associated with it. So uh, however misguided some of the claims might be, uh, Bitcoin, I think, suffers from the same problem. So it, that's a it's an interesting project. I query ETH 2.0 again is trying to be that all singing, all dancing, 
uh, everything to all men. And it started with uh, plasma. So I remember the, the plasma white paper, I think, referred to like something stupid, like trillions of transactions per second. Um, and you look at that and you just kind of like, come on, like trillion, really? Like, you're, is that is that really where we're going with this? Um, when most you know production blockchain systems are clocking in at like 10,000 max, you say that this system that you've architected, and that never, plasma never went anywhere. So, um, you know, TBD, what, ha what happens with ETH? I think it's, a, it's an interesting project. Um, some of the people associated with the Ethereum community are wonderful. Uh, some of the people associated with the Ethereum community are charlatans. Uh, I'm not going to say which or which. They know who they are. And um, it'll, be, uh, it'll be interesting to see what the project does. I, you know, 2.0 will be an interest, perfectly interesting project. Um, I don't like that it's proof of stake, but you know, it's, that's their project. It's their code, not mine. We'll see if they ever get to proof of stake. It looks like Joe Lumen in consensus just invested in uh, an AMD GPU chip. Um, so it seems like those money bags behind the projects want POW to continue for at least uh, one batch of chips at AMD. <laughs> well, I, no comment. I I do not uh, I do not pay attention to Joe Lubin's <laughs> Well. You mentioned that Bitcoin suffers from the same shortcomings in that way. I would uh, be very interested to hear that. And then I have a Bitcoin and law question that I've been dying to ask you because I think it's it's something. Yeah. Yeah. So so Bitcoin has the same problem in that it is oversold, right? So a friend of mine, Perry Metzger, he sometimes he's a smart guy. He runs the cryptography mailing list. So that's the mailing list that the Bitcoin white paper first appeared on. Uh, and he's a pretty he's a pretty clever guy. So generally speaking, he will he he and I will sometimes jump on the phone and we will lament that. And particularly during the boom, it was especially bad, where people would be like, yeah, like Bitcoin's going to replace all banks and you know blah 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 blah. And he was just like, he's, he's, he's like, you know, we would sit there and tell each other that we were tearing each other's hair out because you're like, no, this is not how this works. It's not a bank. Like it is, it is digital money. It is digital gold. It is it is some kind of asset. It is not a bank. Like it's not going to replace the lending function of a bank. And so you have all of these promises being made. And those of us who've been around for a little while are a little more sober about it. Like, I love Bitcoin. I think it's a great project. Um, I love the people in it. Um, it is not going to say, it's not going to cure cancer though. <laughs> like it's, it has limitations. And I think if we're honest about what those limitations are, we're much more likely to find, uh, to find receptive ears in places that matter than if we don't. Um, there are people who, you know, it's going to get there anyway, and people who are smart enough will figure out what those limitations are on their own. But it just drives me crazy when you have groups of people overselling tech, uh, which will invariably lead to people being disappointed when it doesn't live up to those uh, vastly overinflated expectations. So that that's the problem that I think every cryptocurrency project shares. I have yet to encounter a single project where the most dedicated and devoted acolytes uh, have, have not done this, uh, including projects like Ripple, uh, just by way of comparison, the XRP army on Twitter saying, well, when one XRP is worth $20,000 a token, you know, I swear I'm going to go buy a you know, new Ferrari for everybody in the state of state of Georgia. Um, and you're just like, okay, well, that's clearly not going to happen. So, <laughs> like, so why don't we, why don't we try to maybe modulate our expectations to reality a little bit? Um, so that's the only thing that's frustrating. We're back. We're back again. Um, cool. No, I think you answered that question in whole. Um, 
like expect yeah and i agree um and i'm probably somebody who has put overblown expectations out there in the past at times but i try to be more tempered with how uh i pitch bitcoin and its and its capabilities these days especially after having so many conversations with core developers and they'll be the first to really drive home those limitations <laughs> yeah um but yeah i want to we should probably wrap up here almost an hour and a half in um the question i am dying to ask about bitcoin is do you think we could ever get it um labeled in the eyes of the law as free speech like you mentioned it was a financial asset but at the end of the day it is a messaging protocol in which people give value to its scarce information space um me personally i think if bitcoin is to be successful and to be able to run wild as it should be able to, I think we need to get it designated as free speech. Um, and it seems like there may be precedent in the past with PGP. Um, but obviously I'm not a lawyer and I don't know. And I'd love to get your thoughts on this. I think Bitcoin to a certain extent already is free speech, um, but not in the way that, so what, what people who say that often, not always want. So we're speaking in generalizations here, but when I've heard the Bitcoin is free speech, argument made before it, it, it's basically people saying listen we want bitcoin to be exempted from financial regulations because it's free speech i don't think that excuse me i don't think that uh, that's going to fly i don't think that dog's going to hunt so what do i do think will fly uh, i think running a bitcoin node i think that is free speech um, i think the decision to run a bitcoin node is probably free speech um so in, in my humble opinion uh, I think that the ability to put any message you want onto the Bitcoin network and not have the government uh, tell you that that message needs to come down, subject to certain very, very limited exceptions, um, I think that is free speech. So I think you can put a political message on Bitcoin and the government can't prevent you from doing that. Do I think that that, that, that would mean that a, you know, buying a coffee is free speech or laundering money is free speech? No because those things are regulated as financial transactions because they're not protected speech within the meaning of the First Amendment. It's not what the First Amendment was designed to protect. So it depends on what you say, right? So Bitcoin, um, you know, the running a Bitcoin node as a political act uh, is and should be considered as free speech. But all transactions in Bitcoin, that doesn't mean that all transacting in Bitcoin is now suddenly exempt. It means that that particular aspect of our engagement with Bitcoin is protected speech under the First Amendment. And certain things we do, like leaving messages in the, in the Bitcoin blockchain, uh, those will be protected by the First Amendment. It does not mean that we can walk away from financial regs um, because that's, that financial regulations are not, um, are not free speech. There may be certain situations where they are. So maybe some, if there were a federal law saying you can't donate to no. So if there are federal laws saying you couldn't donate to a political candidate in Bitcoin, I think that might be something which would be challengeable. But um, yeah, I think Bitcoin already has some First Amendment parts. You know, there are aspects of the use of Bitcoin which are protected by the First Amendment, not all of it. Um, and I think we should be content with that uh, and we should deal with the rest in a legally compliant fashion. Yeah, well, what worries me the most um, from this perspective, so I, on this outside of the podcast and newsletter I work for a company and we we mine bitcoin using waste gas on oil and gas fields and mm -hmm. just through the nature of doing that you're 
in sort of industry groups talking about uh, Bitcoin mining in the United States, specifically moving forward in the topic of uh, like whitelisted mining pools has come up where, where some companies, uh, financial institutions, funds that are uh, running everything by the book and complying by the book here in the United States uh, are a little bit apprehensive to point hash towards pools like slush pool and F2 pool because they can't yep. be certain who else is mining within that pool. And I, I, I just think that creates a very bad gray area where if Bitcoin isn't defined as speech, that's a huge attack vector where people can partition the network and the mining pool specifically into these whitelisted and blacklisted pools um, because you don't. Yeah, know and, but, but that's a that's really a free association thing. I mean, I don't see it's if you don't. Yeah, I see the issue where maybe you don't want to. I don't see really a legal problem if you're participating in a mining pool. Actually, there. No, I see there might be. Eh, OK, sorry, I'm thinking out loud here. Um, yeah, there might be some issues there, but I don't see that as that. I don't see it as that big a problem. Um, you know, if you can find a compliant, it's an incentive for mining pools that want hash to turn around and get compliant and let everybody know who they're dealing with and start KYCing their miners. And I don't think that's altogether a bad thing. Um, you know, that's, in the grand scheme of things, if you're that looking defeats for, the permissionless nature, though, it doesn't defeat it. It just says that there's a there will still be a market for per, permissionless mining. Um, and people will be able to choose that permissionless option if they want, and people will be able to choose the compliant option if they want. It's up to them. Um, and so maybe Bitcoin will be pulled between those two forces where the you know, corporate America will be on the compliant side, and then you'll have a bunch of bootleg farms, you know, and you know, mining farms in the middle of Iceland that are administered by, I don't know, the polar bear mafia or something that, um, that decide or puffins, actually, that's the main Icelandic critter. Uh, maybe they'll say, you know, a bunch of puffins secretly run a mining farm outside of Reykjavik that uh, that mines, you know, Bitcoin for the puffins in Iceland. I don't know. Um, but I don't see that as that big an issue because people still have a choice. Uh, it's not like the people are, they're hard forking the protocol and saying you must KYC before you can use the protocol. It's just a, it's a competitive issue. Yeah, but then, like, so the KYC thing, like, isn't there a good argument to be made that KYC AML, AML laws do much more harm than good by forcing all these entities to collect all this data? I mean, this is something we say on this podcast a lot. Like you know, all the all the leaks and hacks that have happened throughout the years, it's becoming glaringly obvious to me, at least, that this stuff does way more harm than good to a vast majority of individuals. And like, at what point? Uh, is a law unjust and like, should you fight back against further regulation in that direction? There are a lot of unjust laws. Having to identify yourself is, is not high for financial transactions. I don't really consider to be that high on the list. Um, just personally, I think there's a lot of, there's a lot of unjust stuff that happens and sort of KYCing um, with a bank and complying with the travel rule doesn't really top the list for me. Um, so sorry, I just don't have, particularly strong feelings. Like I understand why people get bent out of shape over that. Um, and I, I sympathize certainly, but for me, it's just not, um, I think I see the free speech and censorship issues that are about people getting pushed off of the internet. For example, those problems to me are much more pressing and immediate than, you know, being unhappy that fidelity, you know, isn't going to mine, uh, with a pool that doesn't identify their users. I think that's much more fidelity's problem or some other industrial miners problem, then it would be a problem you know, for, for ordinary Bitcoin users who are still free to use the, the system anonymously if they choose. 
Yeah. That's a good point. Well, that's why I brought you on to answer these these questions have been bubbling in my mind about Bitcoin and the law. Because it is, uh, that's the other thing. Bitcoin is defined as different types of things between different um, entities, whether it be the CFTC, the IRS, um, FinCEN. And that's that's confusing as well. Like, will there ever be a consolidation of a definition of what Bitcoin is across? Yeah, something's always something's always different in the eyes of different regulators because they regulate different a piece of land looks different to the irs than it does to uh to a local you know to, than it does for the purposes of property law um so it, it, that's something which is fairly common different regulatory treatment for different types of transactions and so i don't think that's going to change at any time in the near future um but bitcoin it's property right that's it's property and as property it can be treated in different ways depending on how you use it um unfortunately i'd have to it's now coming on to the hour, so I do have to jet. But um, but yeah, cool. Anything else? Final questions? No, that's it. Um, thank you for taking some time to do this. Sorry, everything. Uh, sorry, <laughs> crapped out a couple times there, but I think. I think it's my fault. Uh, I, th- I think it's my fault rather than yours. The uh, the office's internet isn't very good. Yeah. But uh, but awesome. Hey, thank you so much for having me on. I really appreciate it. No, I really appreciate it, and uh, enjoy the rest of your weekend. You too. Take care. See you. Peace and love. Take care.